Hey friends, before we dive into the episode today, I just want to let you know about something I just launched. It's called Find the Others. And it's a core idea of something I've been writing about for years, which is that one of the most underrated things to enable people to create and follow unconventional paths is finding other people on similar paths. After many people requested that I start a community, I've done just that. And by joining the community, you'll get access to my paid newsletter and occasional subscriber posts, though every Saturday I'll be sending one that's free. And you'll also gain access to some of the courses I've created, which I've never really found a good place to market and sell those. So I'm going to be putting those in there. I'll also be giving people free access to my book. And if you want a copy, I'll send you a signed copy of my book as well. So check that out in the show notes and excited to connect with people. On to the episode. Welcome to the Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Sam Sperlin, who is an organizational consultant at The Ready. I'm super pumped to dive into that. It's one of the one of a few handful of consultancies that I think are really trying to dive into chaos theory, complexity science, and all these different ways of thinking about an organization. Uh, Sam's also interesting. He's been writing consistently for many years, has had many different interests, and I think is a really good example of carving a different kind of path while still being employed. Welcome to the <laughs> podcast, Sam. <laughs> Hey, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, first question I ask all the guests, uh what are the stories and life scripts that shaped uh who you were as a kid? Man, and and how how do you even go beyond that with a second question because I feel like we could talk about this for a good hour. I'd uh, be more than happy to. <laughs> we may not get beyond it. Uh Two things really come to mind for me, um, and probably more if I sit and think about it a little bit more. So one, I'm the oldest of five. Uh, I have four younger brothers. So there's all sorts of scripts that I grew up with around being a role model, uh, trying to um, bring maybe some order to the chaos of the, of the, the family life. Not in a bad way, but just the, the chaos that you have when you have five, uh, five boys in a, in a family. Um, so I'm sure there is some like birth order theory stuff here that shows up in like how I am in the world, uh, right now. And then the other part is, um, Grew up playing pretty elite uh, ice hockey. Uh, grew up in the Detroit area, um, playing AAA hockey for for most of my childhood, and then um, you know playing into to high school and then um, college at a club uh, for a little bit. So there's this um, there's all sorts of scripts around both just athletics in general in terms of being a good teammate and and dedicating yourself to to getting better at something. And then there's like the really hockey specific ones about like playing hurt. And, uh, you know, nobody's bigger than the team, which in some ways are really positive uh, scripts that, you know, really kind of bore themselves into my brain pretty, pretty early on. And some that have been less helpful. I don't know that playing hurt uh, is the type of thing that I necessarily need to be bringing to my day to day as a 30, soon to be 36 year old. Um, and I don't know. So those, those are the two things that, that come to mind uh, for me. Yeah, that suffering script is such an interesting one and so prevalent in how people think about work. 
And yeah. I think it can be helpful to a point, right? You should you should not feel perfect all the time. Sure. Uh, that is not a good frame if you're trying to do super deep work. Um, yeah. It might feel uncomfortable. But I think a lot of people apply that, oh, I should just struggle, I should suffer, to unnecessary work. I'm sort of, uh, I try to rally around. It's not worthwhile to be doing pointless stuff. <laughs> Yeah, totally, right. totally. I think I was very fortunate that really early on, relatively, so we're talking um, undergrad probably, so t- 2007, I became aware of um, Getting Things Done by David Allen. And it really helped me break that uh, script that I had to suffer to like get work done. That actually, if I brought a little bit of attention and care to just thinking about like, what am I actually trying to do here? Um, I don't have to just crank harder than anybody else to get stuff done. So then through undergrad um, and through grad school, I really tried to pride myself on, I don't pull all-nighters. I work very reasonable hours and I'm going to be perfectly functional in class and I'm like good to go. And I don't need to prove myself by just um, doing increasingly um, bizarre or um, kind of self-flagellation around around work ethic, unless I choose to in terms of like an experiment. Like what would it be like to like do this and see how I react to it? Yeah. Were you playing hockey in college? So yeah, I played, um, so it was division two club. So I wasn't playing, I went to Bowling Green State University. So I wasn't playing for their, their division one team. Um, so it was the club team. Um, which was still like pretty high level hockey. Like everybody played juniors basically who was on the team or a high level high school. And there was the, um, kind of added component that I was the, um, president of the team for two and a half years, which basically meant trying to organize a bunch of, you know, early twenties, late teens guys to actually like do the thing, you know, to work with the university, to get our ice time, to get all the dues together, to travel, um, all, all of that, which, uh, you know, there was nobody paying my way, I guess you could say, for, for playing hockey at the college level. But that was the, the furthest I went. Other than when I graduated undergrad, I did coach the University of Detroit Mercy hockey team uh, for a couple of years, which was a brand new club team uh, as well. So in between kind of uh, graduating and, and moving on to grad school, I did that. Were you thinking of playing professionally? This is a, a, a much l- this is a very interesting <laughs> conversation tied to lots of different things in my life. So playing AAA growing up in Detroit um, is like, you know, kind of the highest you can play in that. So we're talking, I played AAA through through my freshman year of high school and then made the decision to step down to play just regular high school. At that time, I was incredibly burned out on playing high-level hockey and decided to just like go be with my friends and, and do the fun thing. Because um, I had kind of told myself, I had told myself that I had reached my ceiling um, I realized now in, in retrospect that I had an incredibly fixed mindset around my ability to, to, to get better. Um, I was one of those kids who, you know, developed pretty early. So by eighth grade, I was kind of like this size, which meant I was bigger than most people. But eventually everyone caught up with me and I, and I just felt myself kind of falling behind. And yet, Many of my teammates, many of my competitors from that time who weren't necessarily any of the best players when I was playing with them went on and played Division One. Some went on and played in the AHL. Some are still playing in the NHL right now. Wow. Um, so there is this like there's this like this element of regret that I wish I had my um, psychological knowledge and um, 
everything that I've learned in my positive psychology grad program uh, when I was a young teenager, like trying to figure out how to be, be a hockey player. Cause I don't know that I would have been able to play professionally, but I think I probably could have played college somewhere, gotten my education paid for, maybe played in one of the lower pro leagues, ECHL, AHL, that sort of thing. Um, and kind of making sense of that has been a part of my path of like going into psychology and, and really pay, paying a lot of attention to personal development stuff right now, even just beyond athletics. I think David Epstein's book Range talks about this, yeah. right? I'm not sure if you've read that. I have. Uh, yeah, he talks about uh, these sort of late bloomers or people that you don't expect to take off, right? And it's pretty yeah. fascinating, right? Because you could apply it to pretty much everything. Uh, for example, people label themselves as bad at math pretty early in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's probably not true if you raise the stakes and we're in the right environment. I think most yeah. people could learn high-level math. Is that something that drove you to sort of get into personal development? What was the trigger to stumbling upon uh, getting things done? You know, I don't actually remember what the specific path into getting things done was. It might have been uh, Merlin Mann in 43 Folders back in the day. Uh, like He was doing some writing around around GTD, and I don't remember how I specifically came across Merlin, but that was probably my, my introduction uh, to, to David's work. Um, and then, yeah, as I got into learning more about, about GTD, you can either kind of just go down the sort of like life hack route with that, or you can start to ask like pretty deeper, like more fundamental questions about like, well, why does this actually work psychologically? And what are there some more generalizable patterns that you can extract from something like GTD that can be applied, you know, organizationally or in other parts of your life? So I, I went down some deep rabbit holes, which led to me doing some work with David Allen in, in grad school um, that I think kind of set me on this this path. Yeah, so you ended up getting a PhD in organizational psychology. Uh, I bailed on the PhD. I was in the PhD program, but I well, did. I withdrew from that. I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to ask you first, you, know, you yeah. did a stint as a teacher. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's more like, and I definitely want to dive into dropping out of the program because I think that's yeah. like a really interesting positive signal in today's world. <laughs> sure. But um, yeah, you you became a teacher after school. Uh, did you see yourself as plugging away in the the school system for 40 years when you were graduating? It's so weird because I guess I did, right? Because like, I, I, I don't know, I went through the, all the rigmarole of the four years of the program and, um, you know, student taught and did everything that I needed uh, to, to do to be a teacher, um, but very quickly realized like, holy cow, the part that I love about being a teacher is just the teaching part. And you would assume that that's the vast majority of what you do. In reality, it is the minority of, of what you do. And there was so much administrative BS and bureaucracy around it. It was a profoundly, um, we're talking about 2009, 2010 area, uh, era, profoundly pessimistic time to be joining as a new teacher. None of the, the veteran teachers that I was working with seemed to enjoy their job or wanted to, uh, were, were like encouraging in any way. And I had this moment of like, holy shit, I just spent four years getting a teaching degree. I've, you know, kind of done a, a year and a half or so of teaching and I hate this. What am I going to do? Uh, that there was, there was a, um, there was a 
morning that I called off from going in to teach, and I, at this time I was a long-term emergency substitute teacher, which sound which is as bad as it sounds. Uh, <laughs> I basically went in for one day. One day became two days. That's pretty normal. Even one day becoming three days is pretty normal. Three days became, hey, finish the week. Finishing the week became, hey, can you finish the semester? Finishing the semester became, hey, can you finish the year? Nothing prepared for me. And this was like my first teaching gig, essentially. So that was rough. Um, but there was a moment where I called in sick and I took my mom out to breakfast and I like broke down. I was like, I can't do this. I got to do something else. And like got advice from her and just like took the day off. And around that time was when I decided I'm going to go to grad school. I became aware of this thing called positive psychology. I've been writing about it just for my own intrinsic motivation for the past couple of years on my website, realized that, oh, this thing I've been fascinated by actually is an academic discipline. So I'm going to roll the dice, take out a truly astronomical amount of student loans and like go see if I can make this major pivot away from teaching and into something with positive psychology. I have a similar thing that sort of happened after I graduated. It It's funny how poorly our education system, which is so obsessed with getting people employed after college, actually sets people up to realize what that experience is like. So I was working at yeah. GE my first year, and I remember just like talking to my mother on the phone. I'm like, what? This is crazy. Like nobody's doing anything. <laughs> Nobody seems to care. Nobody's motivated. Everyone just wanted to work like for the weekend. And it was like, yeah. what, what is the point? I, it seems like there was a sort of loss of energy and meaning, um, of work at the end of the two thousands. And I think there's an interesting like explosion and we'll dive into this of this whole movement of meaningful work took off in the 2010s. And I think there's probably some downsides to that, but yeah, there was just, I couldn't believe this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, what, no. What were some totally of those conversations you. like with your mom? Like, what did she say? Was she supportive? She, yeah, she was in incredibly, uh, incredibly supportive. I've never had any pressure from my parents to do one thing over over another. I mean, not even when I was, you know, making decisions to kind of step off of this um, hockey path where, you know, once I decided to stop playing AAA and nobody forced me to do that, I made the choice, basically. Um, my dad was did not try to convince me to stay on that path. Um, and my mom, you know, same thing. And the same thing with the school stuff. Like, I've always been... I've been good at school for for better or worse. Like I'm, I like school. So going yeah, back to grad same. school was like actually exciting uh, to me. And I think I had shown my parents and myself that I could generally do things that I put my, my mind to. So I knew that by taking out these student loans, I was kind of rolling the dice a little bit on myself. Um, but I knew that, I mean, I, I realized that I wasn't going to make any real money teaching. I mean, all those teachers out there who are doing that work, I, I admire you so much, but it is woefully undercompensated. And I figured that if I went to grad school and, and did this positive psychology program, even though I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, I was anticipating kind of starting my own thing. And I did actually kind of start my own, my own, um, coaching practice in, in grad school, but I figured, if I'm getting businesses to pay for whatever it is that I'm going to do, I'll have a chance at actually making enough money someday to like pay this back. 
And, and really, I just made the decision that I was always going to have a large student loan monthly payment. And if I lived a very simple life, then it would just always be something I could handle. And I'm fine with that if it allowed me to kind of step into a, a new path, um, which, which I think it did. Yeah. What is the workologist? So way back in the day, I mean, I, my, my various websites have had very, have had different branding. So it was just like the branding that I had around the writing that I was doing. Um, at that time, I don't remember even the specific time frame, but my first website was 2009, started it right out of, um, out of undergrad. Um, it was called the simpler life.net. And I was part of that, uh, spate of websites writing about minimalism, uh, in the early, you know, in 2000s, uh, or so. Um, probably as partially a reaction to realizing I was never going to have very much money, uh, and like wrestling with that. Um, but it was fun to like write about that. And that very quickly turned into more just personal development exploration, um, which was the realization that I was writing about positive psychology. Um, and particularly, um, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's book Flow was the first time that I put two and two together in terms of the stuff that I found fascinating and the academic discipline of positive psychology. I, f- I saw in the back of his book that it said he was running a, a graduate program in California which is how I ended up at Claremont Graduate University studying with, with Mike. Um, so the workologist was just an evolution of when I think I got to grad school, I started to shift my writing a little bit more towards applying positive psychology to an organizational uh, context because that's what I was studying and that's what I found uh, particularly fascinating. But ended up moving away from that and back to just samsperlin.com at some point. What was Claremont like? Uh, what was your mindset going in and you said earlier you ended up dropping out, but what what was your mindset when you're going in? Were you going to be a professor or were you just diving deeper into your curiosity with an open mind? More so the, the latter. I definitely did not want to go into academia. So I went in <laughs> as a master's student and I got my master's degree. So a two-year program full-time uh, at Claremont. Um, I went in pretty sure that I was going to just create my own opportunity in terms of um, – uh, some combination of like writing online, coaching, consulting sort of stuff. So what I really did those first two years was look for every interesting extracurricular activity that would give me experience outside of having uh, basically I wanted to be able to say that I did things other than sat in a classroom. So I took over the um, the TEDx uh, event that happened at Claremont Colleges was kind of the primary organizer of that for a couple of years. Um, which ended up being like a full day. Um, back in the day, those you know TEDx conferences were a really big deal. Um, there were a lot of them. I got really involved with that. Got to go to the Middle East um, as you know with all the, a bunch of other TEDx organizers. So that was a huge part of my first couple of years in Claremont. Um, took on some pro bono consulting opportunities. A couple, a couple of cool things that Claremont did was um, there were some classes where your primary project was just some pro bono consulting work. So that is actually how I got connected to David Allen uh, for the first time and ended up doing um, some work with his company and doing some research that actually showed up in the new uh, the newer version of GTD. Um, there's a chapter about the kind of the psychological implications or the psychological support of why GTD works. And that's mostly the stuff that I had pulled together uh, for him. So Claremont was all about getting as much experience as possible so that when I finished my education, I could figure out like something uh, else to do. I ultimately decided to stick around and do the PhD program 
So when you, when you go from master's to PhD at CGU, you do an additional year of coursework, which I completed, and then you are kind of into the um, whole process of writing a thesis and doing these other projects, which eventually culminate in a dissertation. At that time, kind of in that year, after the additional year of coursework, I, had, I found the ready and I started working at the ready. Um, so I did like a year of being the first employee at the ready and also trying to be a PhD student. And who boy was that bad for my <laughs> mental health. Um, and ultimately decided Sounds like, like a lot. the PhD was a means to an end for me. Um, and I thought, I mean, the main reason I got that was going to do the PhD program was I wanted to start my own consultancy. I had no business background. So what is, why would anybody hire me? What credibility did I have? So I was going to use the PhD as, as that. I mean, you know, until I got some actual experience. I was fortunate enough to be hired uh, by the ready and suddenly I was doing precisely the work I wanted to do. And it became really hard to sustain the motivation to continue working on the uh, dissertation. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. What was it like letting go of the PhD? I mean, was there tension there with the uh, stick to itness of hockey? <laughs> so much tension. I, um, ultimately wrote like a, a long article when I made the decision, kind of walking through like why, how I made the decision. But I mean, I will probably went nine months of going back and forth on should I quit? Should I not? And that whole time trying to like continue working on it a little bit here and there. Um, it was, it was a rough decision, but it was one of those decisions where as soon as I made it, it was like, oh my God, like this is so much better. And why did I not make this earlier? And I have never regretted um, that decision since, since I've made it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was a major weight off my shoulders. And really what it was, is it allowed me to go just sink deeper into what I really wanted to do, which was get really good at like the work that I do right now. And every minute, every second that I was learning some obscure statistical analysis for my dissertation was a second or a minute that I wasn't getting better at what I actually cared about. And once I was able to kind of put it in those sort of opportunity cost terms for myself, it became a no brainer and I was able to make the decision and, and move on. And, you know, it's the, one of those stories you tell yourself like, Oh, my, my advisor has put so much time in me. She's going to be disappointed, which I'm sure she was, but she's also a good person and cares about me and wants me to like do the work that I want to do. And, um, there were other stories I was probably telling myself about like being seen as a quitter and, and, uh, things like that. But, you're able to put that stuff behind you when it means you no longer have to be flogging yourself with a dissertation. Yeah, I sense quitting is still underrated in today's world. I sort of see people quitting things such as PhD programs as an interesting signal. Like, ooh, this person is going against something that would seem obvious to finish out. And is there's yeah. probably some thoughtful reflection there, right? And I mean, if I go through your site... It's pretty interesting. You have, I think, what fourteen years of writing now. It's sort of, you can just yeah. drop into Sam at any point of the time, and it's like, <laughs> oh, he's yeah. pretty thoughtful about this. And I think most yeah. people are thoughtful. They're just not writing about their decisions at the time. Yeah, writing for me. I mean, I every year I would probably say I did not write as much as I had hoped that I would, uh, because writing. I mean, writing is such a huge part of how I 
conceptualize myself. And also it's just, it's how I think. And when I'm writing consistently, it means I'm thinking clearly. And if I'm not writing consistently, then my thinking is probably not as clear as it could be or as I, as I want it to be. Um, so I did a lot of writing through grad school, a lot of writing I mean, a lot of writing that never gets published around that decision to, to quit the, the dissertation. But I do think showing myself that I could quit the dissertation had positive effects in terms of quitting other things as well, too. I've um, tried to become kind of obsessive about finishing things. And that doesn't just mean like finishing thing because you like you did it all. You can finish a thing because you decided you're done. And that is uh, something that I've like tried to work into my weekly review and my monthly review, like looking at my my tasks and my projects and being like, actually, I thought I was going to do this, but I'm I'm not. And now it's gone and I can focus on the things that that actually matter. Yeah. So I, re- I read your why I quit PhD program and you sort of glossed over the, how dramatic it was. You were actually laid off. Before. Oh yeah, that well, that whole part and, too. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the post, you, you're like, "Well, looks like I was wrong." Four weeks after moving to New York, I have this new lease. I now have this debt from school, and I have no job. So, oh yeah, that's that 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 is. I did kind of gloss over the getting hired by the ready part because what I actually did was get hired by Undercurrent, yeah. which was a different company in in New York. I was in LA at the time, and. The, the story there, I mean, I, I'm, you know, in my PhD program, I'm studying independent work. I'm studying self-leadership applied to solopreneurs and, and um, freelancers and totally intend to never work for an organization and just kind of build my own, my own thing. I actually have a company um, with a, a PhD colleague of mine. We're doing some consulting work, like we're living the life while as PhD students. I become aware of this company called Undercurrent. I read their website and it's like this quasi sort of like religious moment for me because it's the first time that I, I read a company's website where they talk about work the way that I had been talking about it with my colleagues and the way I'd been thinking about it. And, you know, they don't, they never use the word positive psychology, but the way they're writing about it, making, you know, work more human, more adaptive is exactly yeah. the stuff that I want to do. And I read their website and I'm like, holy shit, now I have to go work for this company. Like I don't have a choice. <laughs> like I have to. So that it wasn't as simple as like just applying and being uh, hired. I started following everybody who worked at Uncurrent on Twitter to see like what the conversations were that they were having and seeing. And then just like starting to like be present in those conversations. I had a conversation with one of the managing directors and he was like, yeah, you seem cool, but like you need more experience. So I spent nine months like doing as much pro bono consulting work as possible so that when I I showed up again, I was like, hey, I'm still here. I know you see me on Twitter all the time. Let's I want to let's I want to pause on that because I think this is a totally underrated thing to do, which is like I have a lot of people that reach out to me to say, oh, I want to break into consulting. How do you how do you prepare your resume like your your pitch? It's like, well, in today's world, you should just go be a consultant. So yeah. I, I want to dive into what you were saying, but I think this is yeah. such an interesting point. Um, yeah. How do you just go be a pro bono consultant? Now, there are paths for PhD students to do this kind of work. Yeah. I mean, there's also a, a financial incentive because you're not really yeah. making yeah. any money. Um, but yeah, totally. how, how do you just go be a consultant? 
Yeah. So definitely, you know, being a PhD student, being funded by student loans, I had the luxury of like not needing to necessarily make money, which I totally acknowledge that privilege on, on that. Um, I also had the benefit. I mean, when you're a PhD student, that can open doors for better or worse. Like, being yeah. able to say you're a PhD student, like well, people will talk to you sometimes. So that was part of it. And then I mentioned before that I had a couple of classes where there were just, we had relationships with local businesses who needed consulting work. So most of my colleagues would like do the class project. I did the class project and then like went so much further and I would go talk to other colleagues or other um, my classmates who like just finished their project, like, Hey, can I like carry on the work that you were doing with this call with this organization? So I would just like gather things to do there. And then, um, you know, once you get, once you've done like one project, you can very easily like ask for connections to others. And these weren't huge projects, but it was like small organizations. Like the one was like a small little historical society in, in Claremont. They were never going to hire a consultant, but right. to have a PhD student like do some interesting work for them was perfect. Um, so I just did as much of that as possible so that when I went back to undercurrent, I could say like, Hey, here's some actual stuff I've done. And you can talk to these people about what I'm able to, to do. And I think that um, kind of changed the tenor of the conversation, and they finally um, hired me to to come work with them. Yeah, and I am somewhat familiar with Undercurrent, and I know they got acquired, and then a bunch of the people that were part of that split up and started a bunch of different organizations. There was like Noble, August, The Ready, um, and it seemed like a really interesting time. I think in an alternate uh, reality, I might have joined one of these firms. Sure. I talked to people at, this was like 2015, 2016. I was in New York yeah. as well. I was working okay. in strategy consulting. I was also, I also interviewed at LRN and turned down an okay. offer there. Um, cool. So it was a really interesting time of these yeah. newer firms that were tapping into the power of the internet, remote technology to work in a distributed sense. Like what was the energy? Why, why do you think all these firms were emerging around that time? Yeah, it was, it was, um, that's a great question. I think so. Undercurrent was was acquired by a company, a startup called Quirky, that went out of business um, literally three weeks after I joined. Um, so even <laughs> though Undercurrent had just had like the best, I think best quarter of their existence, they kind of were the the the, the speedboat that was chained to this huge tanker that sunk. Um, but coming out of the ashes, as you said, were these various organizations, and I think what Undercurrent had um, kind of uncovered, like they had gone through an interesting evolution where like they started and I, I may be getting this a little bit wrong, but basically started as a more traditional kind of like branding consultancy. They moved into strategy and um, what they had really figured out is and like, I'm sure most strategy consultancies is that they could do amazing work that they were stoked on, that the client was stoked on and yet none of it would be implemented and not because nobody didn't want it to be implemented, but somehow the great ideas that the strategy work uh, brought up would come into contact with just the reality of the organization and nothing would happen. And they decided that's the more interesting question to, to dive into, not like doing strategy work or doing branding work, but like trying to understand why our organizations, why do organizations have such a hard time, like changing themselves, being adaptive, being able to incorporate the work that they were doing. So this, kind of org design focus is what they had turned into by the time that I had read their website and, and joined them. And then when they went under and the ready and Nobel and others kind of came out, Nobel was, existed before uh, the ready, but, but had a connection to undercurrent. Basically everybody decided like, 
let's figure out this org design thing. Let's let's better understand how to make organizations more adaptive, more human places. And it's helped by the fact that, you know, holacracy kind of came out around that time. Sociocracy has been around for a long time, but was becoming a little bit more popular. Um, Frederick Laloux's work, Reinventing uh, Organizations, yeah. all of these kind of all kind of came out at the same time. Um, team of Teams which were all these like new ways of thinking about like what could organizations actually be if they weren't these kind of soulless hierarchical command and control organizations that we've kind of defaulted to for a long time. Yeah. And so you've been doing this work at the ready. Uh, what do you think is the big difference in how you and your team look at organizations now? Yeah, I think it comes to the down to the idea of really accepting and honoring the fact that organizations are complex adaptive systems, not complicated systems. So even though we use complex and complicated in kind of everyday parlance as meaning the same thing, they're actually describing very different types of systems. So a complicated system like a watch or an engine, it's inherently knowable. It may be very intricate. You may need specialized understanding to know how it works. But if I bring you a broken watch and you are a master watchsmith, you can tell me how it's broken. You can tell me how to fix it. You can make it better than it was. Uh, you can you can fix it, essentially. Uh, but a complex system is like the weather or traffic or growing a garden. Like you can't fix these things. There are there are so many independent agents interacting with each other. You're in the realm of probability. It's a probabilistic system as opposed to a deterministic system. So you can model it, you can simulate it, but you can't control it the way you can a complicated system. And so much of how organizations have conceptualized themselves for a very long time, basically since the industrial era, is fundamentally more of that complicated system. We can swap out people interchangeably. We can just like step back and analyze what's happening and redesign it and then introduce it into the organization and the organization will work better. No, like an organization is much more like the weather. And if you are trying to bring complicated mindsets and interventions to a complex system, things you don't expect are going to happen. You're going to be disappointed and it's not going to be a good time. So I think the, what we really try to do is bring that mindset, that understanding that we need to interact and experiment with this system in order to change it. And we can't just go off and be smart and introduce the, the, the answer to uh, an organization. Yeah. And I come from the strategy consulting world and mm -hmm. It's not that they're not interested in this. It's almost that there's too much money to be made from just continuing to deliver what companies yeah. have always been used to absorbing. Yeah. And these complex systems, the fundamental challenge is if you want to communicate to executives, executives want impressive top-down plans that they can talk about to their, their bosses to yeah. make them look like they're doing stuff, right? <laughs> Like I've written about this, there's this massive pressure to constantly show that you're doing stuff. So you need yeah. to invent initiatives and top down things. But if you take the conclusions of sort of complex adaptive systems, sometimes the best thing to do would be to do nothing. Do nothing. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I imagine that leads to a lot of work you need to do around egos. <laughs> totally. Hey there, it's Paul, and thanks for listening to the Pathless Path podcast. I wanted to take a quick break to ask you a small favor. I'm really loving doing the show and for the first time have the support to help me take it to the next level. Unfortunately, it's still pretty hard to spread the word on podcasts, 
but that's where you can help me out. If you enjoy these episodes, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or Spotify, or simply share the episode on social media or with some friends. Finally, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'd probably like my book too. It's been read by thousands from around the world, and each week I get notes saying how much the book helped people on their paths. You can grab the audiobook read by me or other versions in the link in the show notes below. Let's get back to the show. There's so much work uh, around egos. And, you know, there's an element of like a, a only a certain type of leader is going to seek out the ready and want to work with right. us. Like, yeah, there's a different like you got to be kind of up for doing something different because we're not the typical uh, kind of partner uh, on that. And I think we've gotten better over time of setting expectations around like what it actually means to work with us so that we don't have these situations where we have to fire a client, which we did more frequently uh, in the past. Uh, but totally, totally with you, because a lot of our work is about, you know, how do we push more authority and autonomy out to the edges, which is really just another way of saying is how do we take some power away from the top and, and you know upper middle of an organization and put more of it out the edges, which is inherently a conversation uh, about ego and power. Yeah. And how do you do that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Good. It's, a good. it's a good question. I mean, our so one, one way you don't do it is just talk about it. Right. Uh, and one of the things that we have have certainly learned or I've experienced is that um, senior leadership teams are very comfortable um, staying in the realm of the cognitive, of, of being cerebral. And you get creative, smart people in a room for a day. We can talk about anything and make it feel like work. Uh, and what we would much rather do is find something real that we can do differently, even if it's as simple as, hey, you have a weekly staff meeting, which is kind of garbage and mostly just a status update meeting. Great. We have a different way of doing this weekly meeting. Let us run it for you for three weeks and let's just see how it feels. And inevitably, the, you know, this, this meeting um, structure and facilitation style that we will bring to this weekly meeting starts to create space to have other conversations. It becomes a bit of a Trojan horse for, hey, you know, I noticed we spent a lot of time doing the status updates. Are these the right projects for this team to be talking about? What actually is your shared work? Oh, that's interesting, senior leadership team. You don't actually have any shared work. You're not actually a team then. Let's figure out what your shared work is. And now suddenly you're starting to capture some really important kind of org design work that needs to happen in an organization that only a team maybe that's quite senior can can do. So we try to get into the realm of like actually doing stuff like let's go to the gym and actually do some pull-ups. Let's not talk about the perfect sort of workout plan that we could possibly have. Yeah, and it seems like the value there is just creating any sort of pattern interrupt. Have you found it yeah. doesn't even matter what you're doing? You just need to do something to shake things up and make people a little uncomfortable? Totally. It. Um, I would say absolutely agree with that. I think there are certain things that we have seen be just easy places to start. Meetings are one of them because there's it, they're very visible. Um, it's where a lot of kind of like structured interaction happens. And if culture in an organization is just kind of the sum total of how we interact with each other, like inter intervening on meetings is an interesting place uh, to start. But you're right. It's almost a matter of starting anywhere. And sometimes starting means stopping. Uh, so most of our clients are so booked up. Their, their, their calendars are insane. They're double booked all day long. 
there's no space to do anything differently. So sometimes the different thing is just, can we wipe all of our meetings for a week or two and just see what hurts and like put only those things back? Or can we redesign from scratch our, a basic operating rhythm just to create some, yeah, make people uncomfortable, create some space, see it's, it's poking that complex system and seeing how it responds to you. And then you responding to that and you kind of get into this dance now of actually doing things that are um, useful to the organization. Yeah. And how do, how do you work as a firm, the ready? You've been distributed and remote since the beginning. I know at the beginning you did do some uh, in-person stuff, but what are the things you've learned? I mean, I think this is where the remote work debate is just nonsense. It's like, which way is better? Both of them you have to learn, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I imagine after seven years, you're probably starting to get into a groove, but it's always changing, right? You add more yeah. people, you get bigger, you change the scope of what you're working on. Uh, yeah. What are some of the meta lessons for thinking about how to work in a distributed way? Yeah, and I think even you know the early early days of the ready, we were all in New York, so we didn't have to think about this. We had a, like a dope as hell co working space where we would all show up every day, and it was great. But we all started to realize like we don't have to be here. Like New York is not necessarily <laughs> the easiest place to to live, and do we want to only have New Yorkers working for us? Like no, not really. So people started to scatter, and we started to figure out like okay, we can do this in a in a distributed way. And now we are fully distributed, no offices, everybody spread across the world. And um, I think, yeah, what comes to mind here? So one is that you don't just uh, copy and paste your uh, in-person working uh, styles and agreements into a remote uh, first or distributed working uh, arrangement and expect it to go well. Like it's, it, you have to fundamentally rethink your operating system to be distributed first, which means as much as possible trying to default to asynchronous because it is challenging when you're spread across time zones to get onto uh, a synchronous phone call. And therefore thinking about, well, what are those things that we can only do synchronously and making sure that we're only doing those and even taking it a step further, you know, even though we are fully distributed, we have always taken um, our in-person retreats three times a year incredibly seriously uh, because we have really learned that having that those moments of renewal when you are face to face with your colleagues is really important. And we've been really experimenting around what's the best way to use that two or three days where we fly everybody to some sort of location. Um, but the I mean, my personal takeaway from that is even though I think I'm like really easy to work with in, in most cases, and I generally like all my colleagues, if you spend too long only perceiving your colleague as a, a, a virtual avatar or text on a screen, you can start to like your your fuse gets shorter. And when after the retreat, I will oh I've always noticed like oh like I feel just like lighter in how I'm interacting with people because we just had a meal together last week and we you know, we, we went and sang karaoke or like hung out together. And now you're kind of pissing me off on Slack, but I'm okay with it because like, I remember that you're a person as opposed to, I haven't seen you in nine months and I'm just, now you're just angry text on my screen. And I'm like, Oh, fuck this. So there's, there's like that, that we have really learned is, is important. Um, and I think we meet more in person than most distributed companies do, but we've decided to prioritize that as an organization because it's so, uh, it's so key. Um, there are probably, probably other things, uh, as well that I'm just not, not thinking of. How do you spend those days? Like what are the percentages socializing versus talking about the company, 
versus personal development yeah. type stuff? I think the um, the general trajectory has been early on, we way overscheduled them and tried to make them too um, businessy. Uh, yeah. Like really focused on like, all right, we've got we got to do a full company retro, and we have to you know, talk about this and talk about this and talk about this, and like we're like we got. I mean, in some ways, we're all org designers. Big companies do. <laughs> I know, right? And even <laughs> when we were small, we I think there's this element of like, okay, everyone would expect the org designer company to be really well <laughs> like designed and like we've like really take care but it's kind of like you know the the, the the cobbler's children have no shoes like the org designers orgs org design was a mess kind of that we were like try to fix it when we were in our in our retreats together and i think the general trajectory has been more unstructured time less really focused like talking about the business um and more just like hang out together and like be people together um i'm sure we'll probably like swing too far one way at some point and feel like we need to bring it back um but I think we we're doing a, a better job of that. And like our most recent in-person retreat um, last fall was a little bit different because we kind of had some like strategic direction changes we wanted to talk about and really dig into. But yeah. the other aspect is too, as we get larger, you, there's just not much, there's not much a group of 40 can do as a group of 40. Like you can't have like a really intimate conversation with 40, 50, 60 people. It's much more about, individual teams or what we call circles at the ready spending time together talking about their specific area so that's what we spend more time on recently and what do you see people companies are getting wrong uh with remote work i imagine most of the clients you're working with had some stretch of hybrid remote it seems like the majority of companies are in hybrid work now right and a lot of them though are performing office work on the internet yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> not actually doing real work. Um, what yeah. have you seen as some of the entry points to kind of shift mindsets around that stuff? Yeah, I think so much comes to mind. And I like the phrase that you just said there, <laughs> we're kind of performing office work on the internet because, um, when everyone is distributed or you're dealing with hybrid, I think there's such an opportunity to like rethink value creation, which is such a, like, I don't know, I, I, I kind of cringe as a consultant. Like, I was very consultant speak, but you don't have to do all of this kind of theater that you have to do when you're in an office together. Like we could fundamentally rethink like, all right, this is what our customers are paying us for. And this is like the quickest, most direct kind of value chain we can create to, to do that. And why not use this opportunity where we have all kind of had to like toss up all of our routines and how we normally do things and rethink that from from scratch, which is a lot of work. And I think for a lot of organizations, they're like, I don't actually want to do that. And instead, we're going to copy and paste what we did before to virtually. So instead of me going down the hall to a conference room multiple times a day, I'm just going to be on Zoom all day long. And I may not speak <laughs> in literally imagine. any of these meetings, uh, but you know that's what I would normally do. So now here I am, and maybe I try to fit in some work around the edges instead of um, really. I mean, there's so many different forces at play here. You know, executives, senior leaders who are not uh, do not wonderful background noise there. I'll, I'll restart. When that <laughs> we can passes. ride with it. No, we just we can just ride with it. All right, good. Roll Let's with do it. it. This, this is the, the you know the, the pathless path podcast. We are this not is the, going the, for. <laughs> The I'm mean streets of Arlington, Virginia podcast. <laughs> I, uh, no, so I mean, the ego thing comes back into play. Like, if you're a senior executive and you're used to being able to kind of like 
walk out into the hallway and survey your domain. And now you like just see like a list of names on Slack or Teams or maybe just an inbox full of, of emails from your team. Like that's a very different experience. And I think a lot of what we have seen in some of our clients is executives or senior leaders kind of like thrashing and trying to figure out like how do I remain relevant? Uh, which is inserting themselves in places where they don't need to be or putting kind of like dictates in place about like you have to come into the office three days a week because even though – I mean I, I've had some mind-boggling ones. Like all right, you have to come into the office three days a week, but there's no conversation about coordinating with your team. So everybody comes into the office and then it's just <laughs> on Zoom with their teammates who are not in the office. Like this is really – it seems like elementary stuff, but it just shows – what it tells me is that – we're doing it for the wrong reason. If we actually yeah. cared about coming into the office because of whatever reason that you can assert, which could be good, then you'd be a little bit more thoughtful than just saying, you know, come back in and, you know, we need to basically, basically uh, make a case for why we're paying so much money for a building. Yeah. It's sort of cargo cult thinking. It's, <laughs> we need yeah. to take work seriously. People need to be in offices, right? Instead of saying, well, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? Um, yeah. And the the challenge, I think, though, is you might get worse in the short term. You almost and, certainly will. Yeah. And so how do you take clients through that as they're fumbling and screwing things up and dropping the ball? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's a great it's a great question. And I think there's a, it's it's I think there's an element of helping a client have a take the really long term view. And also the incredibly short-term view. So the really long-term view is like, hey, you know, we're going through this tough time because we have this case for like, if once we get through this valley, like we have a better future in front of us. And then you can do things to kind of help make that real and, and tie us to that vision of where we think we're going to go. And so that's the longer-term view. But then in the short-term view, it's just like, hey, is, is tomorrow better than today? Is today better than yesterday? And like really trying to see those incremental gains that are easy to ignore if you're not looking for them. And, you know, that 1% better every day, um, not necessarily just like in metrics, like I actually spend very little time like looking at specific metrics, but hey, did this meeting that we had this week's staff meeting, was it a little bit better than last week's staff meeting? Do we feel like we're talking about a slightly more percentage of our time is spent on the most important work as opposed to just theatrics? Um, so I think my role kind of helps like modulate between those two time frames and not just get stuck in the like, wow, things suck right now. And it, I wish we could go back to the way they were. So I could nerd out on consulting and thinking about this. Uh, that's why day. people, that's why people tune in to pathless path, right? <laughs> they do. I, I, well, I don't know. Uh, dear listeners, you'll, you'll, you'll have, you'll have to, to tell us, you'll have to tell um, us, we'll do more. Tell us. Um, <laughs> but I, I do do a number of episodes where I go pretty deep yeah. on consulting and organizational change. It's, it's sort of my hobby interest now. Um, yeah. and I'm probably losing more and more cred every, um, <laughs> every year of like not actually doing larger change, uh, programs, but I wanted to shift to how you think about work. Um, you've thought about work for a long time, and uh, I don't find a lot of people that do think deeply about work. There's like Tim Ferriss and Cal Newport and me. And this is why I always tell people, please write about work and your reflections on work because there's so yeah. little interesting writing on work. The mainstream writing in a lot of the publications outside of Derek Thompson is just yeah. utterly awful 
yep. sucks. Yeah. Um, so what does Sam think about work? Like, what is work? <sighs> yeah. Well, the, the philosophical question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had a really good, like, clear thesis statement on that because I feel like I have really evolved my thinking over time. Because, like, the, the, the names you just mentioned, including yourself, have all influenced how I think about work. Um, you know, I was really into the four hour work week when it, when it came out. And, you know, some of the things that I talked about earlier in terms of constraining my working hours and really focusing on the most important stuff comes right out of that. Uh, you know, Cal Newport has been a really big um, influence, especially thinking about deep work um, and like what what it looks like to take deep work seriously and why you would even want to. So in many ways, I'm just kind of copy. I'm a, I'm a bit of a copycat um, to those thinkers. I guess I pull a little bit more from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and the idea of flow. Um, so yeah. optimal experience, losing that sense of time. I think, you know, work at its best is a flow experience for for a lot of us. Um, and I think that's that when I read flow and decided to go into the positive psychology, organizational positive psychology route, I was thinking a lot about, well, how do you create that opportunity for more people? I saw plenty of people growing up as a kid, um, whether parents or aunts and uncles or, or friends of the family who seemed to. My, you know, in my experience with them, incredibly capable, incredibly smart, incredibly creative people who would go to jobs where none of that was valued. They would go to their job, punch in, do what they needed to do. And I think there are plenty of people who like that's what they want from a job. And that is awesome. Definitely. I don't begrudge anybody that at all. But there are people and I, I grew up around some of them who I think wanted more from their their work opportunities and for whatever reason it just never really happened uh for them and i think for most of us if we're lucky and healthy you know we spend a lot of time at work or doing some sort of work type activity so how can that be not a death sentence not a jail sentence but actually an opportunity to um to grow to learn about yourself to feel like you're making a contribution to feel like you are developing skills that you care about and kind of that self-efficacy that self-mastery those are all the types of things that i think about when i think about how do we make organizations better how do i how do i want to experience work as an individual whether i'm working for the ready or working for myself or some some other organization in the future um, I think I think work has a lot to offer in those um, in those capacities, but a lot of our current system optimizes for other things, or, or or other things take precedence over those. And the fact that I'm even talking about them may seem like a joke to some people who like don't even get to, to, to sniff anywhere close to some of those sort of more ideal outcomes in in the work that they do. The pathless path listeners are the best. They're thinking yeah. deeply about this. You're not going to get pushback yeah. here. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm always, think, I'm always just trying to listen for like the pushback. Yeah, I totally agree. This, this audience is probably not the pushback, <laughs> but I'm always, I'm always very, uh, I'm trying to become more aware of when I am talking from like a point of privilege that I'm not necessarily articulating or making conscious to myself. Um, and that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to like make sure that I'm not speaking in universal language about work experience, because I think it is such a personal, um, what we, what you want out of it can be so personal and what you are trying to get out of it that I'm, I'm trying to, I'm basically trying to assume that people aren't, aren't always like me, which is, you know, 
tough. Yeah, I th- I think that's a useful lens, especially if you're communicating to a massive audience. However, I do think not enough people actually share what fires them up, what makes them tick, what they feel connected to. Let that rip because not enough people are actually hearing what people, how people are thinking about the recipes for their life. And like, I think we've gone too far in like trying to not just say what we think. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of flow though, because the way I think about work now is that there is this state to be found that you can feel connected to what you're actually doing. Um, now, can you make money from that? I have no idea. It took right. me a damn long time to figure out how to yeah. like make above like break even wages. Yeah. But once you find that state, the experience can be so life altering and jolting that you sort of restructure your life to protect those things. Do yeah. you have those things still? Um, and are they, I imagine writing is one of those things for you. How do you think about protecting yeah. that? Yeah, writing is definitely one of those things. And I'm in the fortunate position that the vast majority of the work that I do at the ready is, is those things. I mean, I think I go through periods of time where just through the nature of what I'm doing, I maybe spend more time in meetings or in conversation with people than I would prefer. Um, but also I'll go through periods like in between projects where I have nothing except my own free time to write and think. And I find myself craving that connection with, with clients. So. I think I'm, I'm lucky in that most of the stuff that I do, I find myself losing track of time. I've, at the end of the day, I feel like I have uh, put forth a great amount of effort towards things that matter. Um, and writing, it's definitely part of that. And I do a ton of writing just in the actual day job, but also, you know, in, in some ways, I feel like I'm on this like seven year detour of working for an organization from the thing that I'm actually really wanting to do, which is like my independent writing and my own kind of like solo stuff. But as long as the ready kind of continues to scratch that itch uh, for me, which I don't see any reason why it would stop. I um I think I'll kind of continue on that path and, and make writing the thing that I do, um, you know, around the edges or if I can bake it into my day a bit more. That's that tends to go better considering after lunch, I kind of um, stop becoming um, coherent. And uh, as I look at two o'clock right now <laughs> and realize, but I'm a morning person for sure. What have you learned from your brother about work? Uh, you've hosted mm. a podcast mm-hmm. with him for a few years now. Uh, yeah. My youngest brother is a uh, organic farmer, uh, so he's a farmer. I'm a consultant, and we um, we have a podcast called Fields of Work. And I love talking about work with him. And um, there's so much similarity in how we think about work and some of the stuff that we have to like that we not not, not the stuff that we do in the sense that he's not on Zoom calls all day, obviously, but thinking about the system that is the farm that he is trying to grow. Uh, literally as a complex system and responding to things that you don't anticipate and how do you um, kind of stay adaptive and um, make really tough prioritization decisions in the moment. Like, do I go weed this field or do I go harvest this field? And like, what are the the, the implications of, of both? Um, it's a lot of fun to talk with somebody who has a much more um, direct relationship with his labor in some ways. Um, and just the way that he he thinks about it, I um I yeah I I went out there and worked on his farm for a week a couple of summers ago and uh, just gave me such an appreciation for like what actual hard work is 
you know, 95 degrees, uh, uh, harvesting okra, uh, is, is quite different than like, you know, sitting on a, uh, in my very nice home office chatting with Paul. <laughs> you're better, you're better than, uh, harvesting okra in the 95 degree Nashville, uh, heat. Yeah. A little easier, but maybe not as rewarding. Um, Maybe, although it was certainly rewarding to go from empty bucket to full bucket. Like there's an element of rewarding yeah. uh, that that I found myself, like I realized that I don't get in basically anything that I do as a consultant. There's very, very rarely is like, oh, we started here with nothing in the ground and now there's like a, a growing field. Like that's that's pretty satisfying. That's so cool. You wrote. I always need to be doing something scary and unknown in order to feel like I'm doing the right thing in my career. What's that about? I think it goes back to what kind of what I did with joining Undercurrent. I mean, even going, going, quitting teaching, going to grad school, joining Undercurrent, doing this ready thing. I feel uh, I'm very wary of complacency because I think there is an aspect of my uh, personality that just loves routine and comfort and will happily stay there forever. And there may be a point where like that's just fine, and like I, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But I have had enough experience of um, ignoring that voice and doing kind of the opposite, and things working out really, really well. That I kind of want to keep following that that path and see where it where it takes me. I, I'm, I think that you're you're quoting the article that I recently wrote about kind of looking back at the last seven years of my career and like trying to like make sense of like, do I like where I am? Do I want to do something different? You know, how am I thinking about that? Am I, am I right? Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, and I found that fascinating because it's such a good lens into, this is why I love reading what people write about work. It's such a good lens into there's no real right path, right? Yeah. And you're, you're constantly just sort of checking in. Okay. Do I like what I'm doing? And you sort of talk yourself into, okay, I'm going to stay at the ready. This is working, yeah. but you're also giving yeah. a peek into, oh, I do have this uh, solo ambition. Um, yeah. And I think a lot more people are having that because there's way more people taking unconventional paths and doing their own thing. But at yeah. the end of the day, um, it's all like my path is still like, would be a job to some people. It's enjoyable to me, yeah. but it's it's yeah. so hard to figure that out moving forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the it's that just that commitment to regularly checking in with yourself and just like asking like how things are going. I mean, that's that's a retrospective meeting in an organization, and we often talk about if you're going to just do one thing in an organization to make it function better. Make a commitment to once a month come together with your team and ask yourself like what's going well, what do we want to change, you know, what's not going as well, and like making a small change based on that conversation. If you at the very minimum just do that, things will get better, and you can do that as an individual practice uh, as as well. Who's your path role model? Great question. Um, I don't think I have one at the moment. There are folks, I mean, I, I think I find myself looking at uh, folks who have made writing the vast majority of what they do. So whether just an, an author or writing online um, or that I I I can think in my in my moments where I'm frustrated with how much time I'm spending um, dealing with clients or feeling kind of over the the consulting side of things, I look at the folks who are mostly writing and I'm like, I want to do what you do at some point. 
but I also know like I've had enough, like I took a sabbatical two year, two year and a half ago for four months where I, I had a ton of free time and I did spend a bunch of time of it writing. And by the end of it, I really wanted to do some client work. So I don't, I'm, I'm, I know enough about myself to know, like, I don't know that that is, that the grass is really that much greener on that, on that side. Yeah, it's so hard. I think I've enjoyed working on my own because I am able to balance all the things. So I work with corporates on training. I was running a workshop for a company in Indonesia last night on strategy consulting skills. Today I'm doing a podcast. I'm taking the rest of the week off, but (laughs) I do a bunch of different stuff. I went to the gym this morning. gives me all this flexibility, but I've really resisted the urge to do just one thing. I think that's often a trap sometimes. And it's sort of downstream from thinking about jobs as like saving us, right? We sort of think once I have that dream job, everything will be figured out. It's the reality is we need a mix of different types of things. Trap is a good word because I... Even going back to my like, you know, writing about minimalism days and and simplicity, there are I will find myself sometimes really getting on the um, kind of thought uh, path of I wish I just had one thing to get really good at. Like if I was just getting good at one thing, imagine how good I would be at that one thing. And um, I I think that's actually probably dangerous for me because I, I I agree with everything that you that you just said. So as 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 satisfying as it would potentially be, or I think it would be to be this some sort of like uh, urban writing monk, I don't think it would actually <laughs> make me that uh, that happy. I love that, and yeah, and people that are writing a lot, it's off. We it's often our projections, right? We see somebody and like, wow, they're writing a lot, but they're often doing other things. They might be working on other things that we might not label as work, yeah. or they're doing promotional stuff, interviews, different things like that. Uh, But I sort of think this impulse to do one thing is essentially a personality type. This is a working theory. But I think it's a personality type of basically just somebody that has outsized focused on clear rewards. Mm. Right. So there's people that are just so obsessed with crushing it and scaling and getting enormous wealth in short amounts of time. Um, and it's always them who are like, you need to focus, you need to work on one thing. But yeah. over and over again, I'm just doing a bunch of random stuff. I'm probably dropping the ball collectively on all of them. But it's hella fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 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 right there with you. And I think my my particular flavor of that is less about the like, I'm gonna do one thing so that I can kind of squeeze as much out of it. And more so, at least this is what I tell myself, more so about like what layers of mastery would I uncover if I really just took this one thing as seriously as possible? There's that element of it that I think is really fascinating and there's something to it, but also you have to, the opportunity cost of that is so high and you have to be okay with paying that. And I learned through the PhD process that I was not willing to pay that opportunity cost. And I don't think I would be to just purely be a writer either. Um, if that meant, you know, I couldn't do a podcast in the middle of the day or do a client workshop on value stream mapping, which is apparently what I'm doing in an hour. So, you know. Nice. Use those lean principles. I used to, <laughs> I used to do some value stream mapping back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that's inspired you in the last six months? Hmm. Hmm. What is something that has inspired me in the last six months? I love writing. I love I love reading Craig Mod stuff. 
you know Craig Maud? Yeah, he's great. The long, the long walks and everything that that he does, and the kind of the independent career that he has pulled together for himself, making book shaped objects. Maybe I, this I is could your have, path role model. I was just about to say. I was just about to say. Coming back to your previous question, I think he might be kind of my my role model. Uh, even to the point I mentioned the sabbatical that I took. What I did on my first day of my sabbatical, um, I wanted to do a week long challenge where I walked like 25 miles a day for a week. And I did the first day and I got massive blisters all over my feet. And that was the end of that uh, experiment. But that was my attempt at like channeling uh, uh, Craig Maud. So I love the stuff um, that that he does uh, for sure. I mean, I'm, I, I'm resisting the urge to just like pop open my Goodreads and look at like what books I've read recently. I've been trying to read more fiction uh, because I – I mean, part of my story about, you know, working at the ready is that I went right from grad school to consulting. So like I had zero experience. I felt very behind the eight ball every day. So I tried to make up for it by just reading an insane amount of nonfiction related to the work that I was doing. And that probably carried on too far. So in the past couple of years, I actually feel like I do know what I'm doing and can kind of hold my own. So therefore I can like do other things. So I've been reading a lot more uh, fiction, which is just to say that, you know, I've really enjoyed like you know, the the three body problem and some other sci fi nice. that I just haven't read in a in a long time. And I want to be a fiction writer sometimes, and then I sit down to like actually try, and I'm like, oh it's shit, hard. this is like a, a thing that I have. This is a muscle that I have never developed. <laughs> Why did you leave New York? It was really simple. Uh, so my girlfriend at the time was still in L.A. I moved to New York to work for Undercurrent, and then the Ready. We were long distance, and then she got a job in D.C. And I realized at that time, Aaron had already moved away and a couple of other early employees had all moved away from New York. And I was like, well, why am I going to stay in New York? So I just moved down to Arlington to, to move uh, in with her. I love it. Um, yeah. Where can people find your writing, uh, learn more about the ready? What are the best places for that? I know the uh, Aaron Dignan has a podcast called Brave New Work that you make appearances yeah. on sometime. And you guys I have a been cool on, yeah. newsletter. But yeah, yeah, where can people learn more about the firm, your work, follow your writing, etc.? Yeah. Yeah, so Brave New Work, uh the book Aaron wrote is a great um look look at, you know, kind of everything I was talking about here in terms of the work that we do and how the ready works. Um the podcast that he does with Rodney Evans um is great, also called Brave New Work. The ready is theready.com and then samsperlin.com has um generally all of my writing uh can be found there and various other projects that I uh am exploring. Amazing. Excited to continue to read your writing. You also have um the deliberate which is your newsletter. Yeah. Um Yep. But yeah, uh, excited to keep learning from you and uh, keep sharing, man. Likewise. Cool. Likewise. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciated the conversation today and uh, let's keep it going. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.